0: Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise, with lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast.
1: Welcome into the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. My name is Jeff Finnup with Badgerland Legends, and with me is... Mike Huberty, the owner of American Ghost Walks. Well, today we're going to talk about the Beast of Bray Road.
0: Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorites, southeastern Wisconsin, right where I grew up. Let's hear about it.
1: So I'm going to take you to the small town of Elkhorn, Wisconsin. It's the Christmas car town. Picture yourself, middle December, downtown Elkhorn. It's idyllic, done up in festive holiday decorations, mid-century homes. It's really a caricature of small-town America, mid-century 1950s. So Sounds why is, beautiful. Yeah, it, it is a beautiful little town. So why is it called the Christmas card town? Well, in 1952, a television series called March of Time featured Elkhorn during the holiday season. It put the town in the national spotlight It captured the attention of many artists, and they flocked to the downtown during the Christmas time and captured many of the scenes and the landscapes in their portraits. It was a real slice of Americana. So in 1958, the Ford Company commissioned artist Cecil Johnson to capture six watercolors to be featured in their monthly publication, the Ford Times. The company selected Elkhorn as the backdrop. Readers enjoyed them so much, they turned five of the pictures into Christmas cards that were then distributed nationwide. It cemented Elkhorn as the Christmas card town. So each year, the town commissions an artist to paint a new holiday scene for their official Christmas card. So that's kind of the veneer, kind of the setting where the Beast of Bray Road is. It's kind of this idyllic little town, but it's got a kind of a seedier underbelly.
0: Right, well okay, so Elkhorn, I'm picturing Uh, you know, I think when I've been there, it's just been a nice downtown. It's got like a, like a main square and a main street. And if you're thinking about it in the 1950s, right, when they did this, it's, I mean, it's the, the Norman Rockwell, the snow coming down. You can imagine the 1950s cars and the little businesses and everything like that. So I love what you're saying here. So Elkhorn, Wisconsin, the Christmas card town. Not the kind of place you'd expect a
1: monster to... movie to take place. <laughs>
0: that's exactly exactly. Right.
1: So that's kind of the duality of the place. It creates kind of a nice little balance, some drama with what's about to happen in the story. So, geographically, it's about forty miles southwest of Milwaukee in Walworth County. Um, it's only home to about ten thousand people, so pretty small community. Mostly farming, some professional businesses downtown. It was also the home to two brass instrument companies, Holton and Getson. So that is pretty much the background. It's unassuming, nice little downtown, not too much. If you drove through it, you wouldn't think twice. Well, in 1991, on a slow news week at the end of December, we just went through this. There's not a whole lot going on between Christmas and New Year's in Wisconsin. Everybody kind of takes... Time off to be with their family or reset for the next year. Well, anyway. And it's cold. And it's cold. <laughs> and it's cold. <laughs> and, and the Packers are playing football if we're lucky. Yes. So in 1991, during that slow news week, an article was published in a small weekly Walworth County paper called The Week. The article was titled Tracking Down the Beast of Bray Road. The story by Linda Godfried detailed the rumors of a creature that stalked Walworth County along with eyewitness interviews. So that was kind of the start of The Beast of Bray Road, was this article by Linda Godfrey in this hole in the wall. Nobody's ever heard of this publication.
0: Right. The week is not, only, it's not Newsweek.
1: It's not Newsweek. It's exactly. the week. And no, no, no week.
0: disrespect to small town newspapers because they're yeah. wonderful.
1: So this, it got distributed to Delavan and uh, Lake Geneva and of course Elkhorn, but not really widely read, not reputable paper of note. Right. So it got published and then a nearby Janesville reporter wrote a recap of the story for their paper. And then it hit the AP news wires, which means it got spread further and wider. So the story spread across the country A nearby Milwaukee TV station dispatched camera crews to a desolate stretch of road near Elkhorn called Bray Road. This is the epicenter of the phenomenon. And of course, you know, with the alliteration, Beast of Bray Road, it kind of stuck. Sure. So Bray Road itself, it's only a four-mile stretch of railroad consisting mostly of farm fields, a few houses, and some patchy woods. So it's not like the big woods. It's not northern Wisconsin.
0: It's not, the. I mean, it's like rural farmland. I mean, it's, yeah. we say it's the middle of nowhere, but like you said, it's less than 50 miles to Milwaukee and like less than 50 miles to Chicago.
1: Yeah. And nearest big town is, is Lake Geneva, tourist town. Uh, I think that's probably what, 20, 25 miles away. Right. And it's unassuming, just a little patch of road. If you drive down during the day, you would never know that you're on the Bray Road. Because it's just farm fields, it looks like anything else in that section of Wisconsin, kind of glaciated. And farm fields, small amount of woods, so not a lot of places for a creature to hide out. So not something that we, you would say, well, this is definitely, you know, beast of Bray Road country.
0: Right. It, you know, and the funny thing is, you talked about that local TV station from Milwaukee comes out and they send their reporters to say, like, is there a werewolf? In Walworth County.
1: Yeah. So, it, and it's probably backed by some spooky music, probably.
0: There were some illustrations they put up. Yeah. Uh, Linda Godfrey was an illustrator as well as a reporter and mm-hmm. writer. And so they put up the illustration of the Beast of Bray Road that she drew based on witnesses' accounts. What's funny, Jeff, is I remember the news thing when it came out because I was all excited mm-hmm. because I grew up uh, about 15 minutes from Elkhorn. And so when that news came on, I'm like, oh my God, there's a werewolf. But also we were in the Milwaukee suburbs. So it's not like it would be this up north in one of the, the forests or state parks where you have square footage of thousands of miles of trees where something like this could escape. This was, I mean, if you get on the if you get on the freeway, you're twenty minutes, you know, from a city.
1: Yep. Exactly. And that's that really kind of cements the geography of the location. So, you know, after that article came out, it gained a fever pitch. The article and buzz surrounding the Walworth County werewolf opened the floodgates to the stories of the sightings around southeastern Wisconsin. So that's where our subject gained its mass consciousness. So let's talk about the article itself. It was an original article. It seems to have informed a lot of the mythos that we know today sure and that was 30 years ago so as i said before it was uh written by linda godfrey we know her in the paranormal community in the wisconsin community as kind of a paranormal writer but back then she was just a small town journalist uh she was an artist a cartoonist a, a wife and a mother and a resident of Elkhorn. so kind of
0: anybody, your mom's friend growing up. She wasn't the adventurer you think of today when she talks about all the places she's been and stuff like that since the original Beast of Bray Road article. I mean, this wasn't her forte at the time.
1: No, she was just a, a mom and, you know, an avid writer, cartoonist. She liked creating stuff and this kind of fell into her lap. So a freelance journalist tipped her off to a werewolf stalking rural outskirts of Elkhorn. Linda, like any rational person, had a chuckle, and this freelance writer wrote for several publications as well as Moonlit as a bus driver. So now, in the '90s, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have Reddit, you didn't have Twitter. Uh, the only fertile ground for urban legends was either the schoolyard or the school bus.
0: That is right. So, right. There's no TikTok to spread urban <laughs> legends. No, there's, no there's no TikTok. There's no Instagram. From Fifth hour.
1: Yes. You know, growing up, being a public school kid having to get bused in, this is where students would exchange ghost stories and urban legends. So the bus driver slash freelancer heard the school kids talking about what they were calling a werewolf around Bray Road. She talked to one girl who had an interesting encounter with an unidentified creature. The bus driver didn't want to write the story herself because she thought it might conflict with her job. She also knew some of the key players in the story. And she also felt there might be some occult elements involved. Mm. And that's kind of where the occult gets injected in the story early. So she passed along the uh, info to Linda, and Linda started investigating. Now, we talked about the occult, and we talked about what it was to be a kid in the late 80s, early 90s coming up. And I remember the Satanic Panic. Being a 10-year-old at the time, going to Catholic school, having kind of an overprotective Catholic mother. She would (laughs) forbid me from listening to Ozzy Osbourne or Judas Priest because she read the uh, Time magazine articles about satanic ritual abuse. And she read about Dungeons and Dragons and kind of the perils about kids losing their minds, you know, that had... Clearly today we'd be like, well, they had underlying mental health. Right. But they weren't going to take the chance in those days in small communities in Wisconsin with this stuff. So they just forbid kids to listen to Ozzy or Black Sabbath or whatever.
0: Well, you say Dungeons and Dragons, Jeff. Now, Walworth County, where we're talking about, you mentioned that Lake Geneva is the biggest city close to Elkhorn and Bray Road. Mm Mm-hmm. The headquarters of TSR, the company that published Dungeons & Dragons, is based in Lake Geneva, just a few miles away from Bray Road and Alcorn, where the sightings happen. So if people are worried about Dungeons & Dragons uh, creating like satanic rituals for kids, and you're talking about where people then have werewolf sightings, this is a few miles away from where the words are written.
1: Yeah, so the game, the role-playing game, Right there, not too far from the Bray Road phenomenon.
0: So this is a thing that went out to different churches and stuff, written in the mid-80s. A guy named William Schnabelin writes Straight Talk on Dungeons & Dragons. It's published in 1984. Dungeons and Dragons is a tragic, entangled subject. It is essentially a feeding program for occultism of witchcraft. For Christians, the first spiritual problem is the fact that Dungeons and Dragons violates the commandment of one Thessalonians, abstain from all appearance of evil. Much of the trappings, art, figurines, and writing within D&D certainly appears evil, to say the least of it. On top of that, the second issue is the materials themselves, in many cases, contain authentic, magical rituals. Explain that to my nerdy 13-year-old self or whatever, that I'm having an authentic magical ritual in d and I can tell you this from my own experience, as we says. I was a witch high priest during the period 1973 to 1984. During some of that period, I was also involved in hardcore Satanism. We studied and practiced and trained more than 175 people in our craft, and our coven was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Just a short drive away from the world headquarters of TSR, the company that makes D&D. In the late 1970s, a couple of the game writers actually came to my wife and I as prominent quote-unquote sorcerers in the community and they wanted to make certain the rituals were authentic. And for the most part, they are.
1: Wow, so this guy sounds like a real LARPer.
0: (laughs) Right, he's playing D&D, he's doing magic, and then he says that It's real and not just, and so this is what people are getting. Like you said, like your mom doesn't want you to play it. She doesn't want you to listen to Ozzy Osbourne and all that kind of stuff. Sally Jesse Raphael has satanic ritual abuse on the, you know, the talk shows. Oprah had an episode on it. Geraldo, like had a whole thing on satanic ritual abuse. And that's the idea that your neighbors might be Satanists. You know, and that they're performing rituals and that they would kidnap kids to perform these rituals on.
1: Yes. And this was so prevalent. I can remember my older sister, she's about two years older than me, bringing a friend over. And she was kind of a a girl from a broken home, lived in the duplexes next door with her mom. Um, Not sure what her relationship with her father is, but my mom had the audacity to ask my sister... If Sabrina, quit the name, Right. (laughs) this was before the Sabrina, the teenage wish phenomenon, which it it kind of fits, though. But to ask Sabrina if she or her mom practiced witchcraft. So it was a prevalent thing. It was uh, uh, definitely of the times without access to the Internet. It was hard to dispel these rumors. It was like the guy that uh, you just read the quote from. These people were published in Time Magazine or Newsweek or the local paper. And, you know, the Bettys would get together at cocktail parties and talk about this stuff and how to keep their kids safe from it.
0: It was on the news, too. I mean, when people were talking about, you know, what was going on in the news, 1991. So this, the article comes out like in late December 1991. And already in 1991, we've got a couple of different Milwaukee cases where they think that Satanism is involved. The first is this guy named uh, Joachim Dressler, and somebody came to his house, like an activist or whatever, who comes along, you know, collecting Looking money and things. Looking for collections, yep. Like when the public radio guy comes over and asks for a donation or whatever. And Joachim Dressler, uh, this is September 13th, 1991, three months before Linda writes her article. This is the AP Newswire. A judge on Friday sentenced a man to life in prison without parole for killing and dismembering a young environmentalist who knocked on his door soliciting donations.
1: I mean, I felt like doing that too when people knock on my door, but (laughs) I I definitely curbed the temptation. Right,
0: right. And that's why he didn't get a death sentence. No. And so the judge says, the murder is the most vicious and aggravating crime that has been seen in my history of 20 years in Racine County. It makes the other crimes read about in the paper pale by comparison. Now, the Racine Journal Times earlier during the trial, they have a whole article that says, Satan worship theory discounted. Satanic killings are known to cause injuries similar to those suffered by murder victim James Madden. But a medical examiner said, although the injuries may be consistent with a satanic type of death first of all, what's a satanic type of death, (laughs) right? And he goes, it's my opinion that it's a homosexual homicide. This was, well, there was, he invited the guy in, some things happened, and then he murdered him. Joachim Dressler, obviously. But the defense was trying to say that there was Satanism involved in this murder. And the verdict is three months before we're talking about the Beast of Bray Road.
1: So there's already an undercurrent there.
0: Oh yeah. And a training manual provided to police agencies at the time. This is, it's called from satanic cult awareness. Is this that they're giving out to police? One indication of satanic cult activity is the appearance of mutilated animals. Having qualified medical examiners examine the cadavers of these animals for missing blood, sex, or other organs, and look for electric shock. In some cases, the epiglottis on these animals will be frozen open just prior to death. So make sure to check with local humane societies and complaints against individuals torturing animals. So all this stuff that's going on, the police departments are getting satanic ritual abuse, you know, pamphlets on how to detect it. This is in the news. Jeffrey Dahmer is July in 1991. And from the first thing we hear about cannibalism and possible rituals involved in his eventual trial, they say that he was so focused on uh, the demonic character from The Exorcist III, the, the demon that was possessing people and killing him in The Exorcist Three, that that kind of took over his mind when they were using the insanity defense to try to get him not to go to prison instead of go to a mental facility. So when we think about satanic panic in the late 80s and early 90s, When you talk about the occult activity that all of a sudden the bus driver kind of mentions um, from having to deal with kids and stuff, this is something that people take seriously, that journalists and the media are taking seriously at the time enough to write articles and have it be a thing out to AP. It's taken seriously enough that this is something people are thinking about.
1: And that's probably why the freelancer said, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to just pass this one off. And uh, just geographically, we said Milwaukee's only 40 miles away. So Kenosha County is right there along with Milwaukee County, not too far from Walworth County. So <laughs> right.
0: it's, it's all right in the same vicinity. So they're all connected on the interstate. I-43 like goes right through, you know, downtown Milwaukee and you get off on I-43 to get on the Beast, of, uh, the, not the, the beast, beast of, of road Expressway. That's what it,
1: they should rename it'd it.
0: It'd be awesome if it said like beasts, you know, take a left. Yep. So getting back to that
1: article, Godfrey writes the article and one of the witnesses that she calls Barbara. Now she masked the identities of the two young ladies in the article by using pseudonyms so uh laurie Andrizi was barbara and uh she writes more about that in her book so barbara described the creature to be the size of a man about five seven 150 pounds brownish gray fur long claws large teeth fangs and pointed ears and pointed ears are probably what tipped it off to kind of the werewolf and its face had a long snout it resembled your traditional werewolf instead of uh sitting on its haunches it sat in a kneeling position This is one characteristic that seems consistent between reports is this creature kneeling by the side of the road. So Barbara recounts her encounter, which she had one night while driving down Bray Road. The creature was alongside the road, presumably feasting on roadkill. So that was the Andresi encounter or Barbara from the week article. The other eyewitness encounter that she chronicled was Pat. She was a high school girl. And this was likely the girl that told the bus driver that kind of tipped off Linda. So the girl from the bus had an encounter on Halloween night. Of course, Halloween night. That's
0: that's the night for werewolves in Wisconsin, (laughs) maybe.
1: So this was 1991, so this was just a couple months before the article got published. So she was on her way to pick up her mom's boyfriend's daughter from trick-or-treating around 9 o'clock. She was driving down Bray Road by herself when she felt something hit her car. She stopped the car and got out to look. She checked to see what uh, had hit it, but couldn't find anything. But this is when she encountered the beast. She saw what she described as a big, hairy creature running up on her. Terrified, she got back in her car. The thing grabbed a hold of her car. The way it was running suggested it was on two legs, unlike a dog or a wolf. She had never seen a human run this fast as she sped away in the car. And she also recounts that she had an uncle who was a track star and the fastest guy that she knew. And this was clearly
0: faster. That's kind of nice, though. Yeah. like but the uh, Giving a hand tip fa- to
1: the uncle reliving his glory years.
0: <laughs> right. He's like, oh, yeah, baby. I used to get first place trophies.
1: That's right. It's like Uncle Rico. <laughs> That's
0: exactly what I was thinking.
1: So she claimed that uh, it was bigger than any animal she had seen around there, bigger than a coyote or her pet Rottweilers. So she was saying that this thing was huge and it ran up on her, and it had, you know, extra-worldly speed. So after picking up from the girl from trick-or-treating, she went back down Bray Road, and she saw the thing again. She described it as, my favorite quote from the Braille Road phenomenon, a freak of nature, one of God's mistakes. <laughs> so that's... awesome. That, that, those were the two main interviews that... Linda ran, and then she also recounted an incident with an 11-year-old girl who was sledding. Her name was Heather Bowie, and she was sledding with some friends when a creature that she just thought was a big dog kind of came out of the brush line or the woods, and she didn't think anything of it until they looked at it, and then it chased them. It had a uh, silver-colored fur with brown in it, and its face was shaped like a coyote, but the back legs were shaped differently. Quote, when it stood up, they looked bigger than a dog's or coyote's, like they could stand up and jump and stuff. So pretty much the bipedal description that we're talking about, maybe being on all fours and then standing up and then running and and jumping. Right. So Heather said the creature continued to stand and looked at them until the children realized it wasn't a dog and started running back to the house. So that's three of the accounts from that article. And uh, let's see here.
0: Well, that's one of the things that helped to take off, right? Because like, you know, when you mentioned earlier that when the AP picks it up, then it starts getting national attention. I remember seeing on inside edition not too long after. Mm -hmm. And that's when Lori reveals her identity because they interview her on inside edition. Okay. And, you know, so before there were 24-hour news networks, there were these like...
1: They were television news programs and sometimes they were really hard-hitting investigation like a current affair and hard copy right. but every once in a while they would inject something like aliens uh we we've talked to aliens our producers had an interview with aliens <laughs> Which- so there was there was some some credibility problems with these to begin with but you know Housewives and single mothers just ate these things well,
0: up, right? Well, it was—it's the TV version of the Weekly World News, and like Mori Povich was the host of a current affair until, and then he became a talk show host where it was like, oh, you know, who's the dad or whatever this yep. thing. Um, Bill O'Reilly. Bill was O'Reilly was the original on host a current of Inside affair edition.
1: Oh, Inside Edition. Okay. And
0: he wasn't the host on the Beast of Bray Road episode or whatever, but then he goes off and makes a bajillion dollars or whatever for being Fox a political pundit. Yeah. But actually, it was funny in in Linda's book, the uh, original Beast of Bray Road book, she talks about Inside Edition and says how actually they were very balanced and not as sensationalistic as she thought they were going to be when they covered. And and I think that's why people like Lori Andreessen felt that they could talk about it without getting completely made fun of.
1: Sure, sure. So in the article, Linda also interviewed the county's humane officer, John Fredrickson, so, think animal control. So, when she visited his office, uh, Fredrickson pulled out this manila folder and it was labeled werewolf in quotations. So, this confirmed to Linda that there might be more to the story. Fredrickson's best guess the mysterious beast is actually a coyote or even a wolf, both of which were unofficially reported in there. He concluded on the nature of the creature, it'll actually spring up, give you the illusion that it's standing. So, if they get caught sight of the animal at just the right moment when it was lunging, it could appear to be on two legs. So, John, he tries to be the rational one, the reasonable one, but he's also the one with the werewolf folder in his desk drawer. So, it might have been something kind of tongue-in-cheek, but when Linda Godfrey saw the folder, she thought, okay, well, what's the real story? What's actually going on here? And that's kind of where... You know, Linda had the jumping-off point that maybe more than just these two girls saw this, so she looked well, deeper. he
0: says to her, he says the county's getting stranger.
1: He did say that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so, I mean, then that was outlined in the book, and also the Seth Breedlove documentary, "The Small Town Monsters," where he is uh, profiled heavily. So that's kind of the synopsis of the article that kicked the whole thing off. Again, once that article was published. And picked up nationally, it created this huge frenzy. Godfrey thought, it'll just eventually cool off. But it didn't. We're still talking about it 30 years later. So the media coverage um, teased out lots of stories. One unexpected story came from Joe Shackleman. Uh, he'd reached out to Linda with a story that had passed down from his dad, Mark Shackleman. Now, this is one of the earliest accounts of the creature that fits the description of the Beast of Bray Road. So, this was 1936. Joe's father, Mark, was a night watchman at St. Coletta's, which was a uh, Catholic convent in nearby Jefferson County. And most notably, it was the um, facility that housed uh, Rosemary Kennedy, tragically.
0: Right so, after the Kennedys gave her a lobotomy.
1: I don't know if there's a, a successful lobotomy, but. <laughs> right. The, the poor girl, they. Uh, They they messed her up, and uh, that's where she lived out her days, at um, St. Coletta's. But this is going back to 1936, where Shackleman was policing the grounds when he spotted an unusual creature kneeling atop one of the Indian burial mounds on the grounds. He said that the dark figure had long claws and it was scraping the ground, but it fled as the watchman approached. So the next morning, Shackleman went to that mound he found rake marks atop the earthen mound, which appeared to be made by at least three claws. So Shackleman, he must have been a courageous dude because the next night at the same time in the same place, he went there armed with nothing more than a heavy flashlight. So he marches down to the barrel mound. And sure enough, that creature is there on top of the mound. But this time the creature didn't retreat. It stood up and faced the watchman. Now, Mark, the son, reported that his dad described the creature as covered with darker black hair. It gave off a bad odor. Its eyes looked right into me, and it made a sound, low and mean. It was three-syllable growl, something like gadara. Then I did the only thing I could do. I prayed to God to save me, and it turned and slowly walked away. So that's the story of the earliest encounter of what people would describe as this hairy beast, And it talks. It talks. It makes, it makes a sound that sounds like Gadara, and you'll see where that comes in right. later in the story. So,
0: Okay, so the first thing you know, that Linda's talking about in the stories that come from John Fedrickson and the reports that come... From Lauren Andreezy and Doris Gibson and Heather Boyd, like it, it's like, okay, this is a scary creature, but it's not necessarily some kind of supernatural entity. And then in this story that this this guy comes in, he's like, my father told it to me before he died. It was, he swears by it. And why would my dad lie?
1: And it sounds like Shackleman was the, the senior, was a religious man. You know, he was a night watchman at a, a Catholic place. Right. Prayed to God. So- it kind of injects this kind of Christian mythos to it.
0: Yeah, and it's talking.
1: And it's talking. It's talking. <laughs> right,
0: this is the first. Yep. So the wolf man that people see, like, okay, maybe well, maybe it's just a big dog. Uh, a big dog that talks. And not just like when people say, hey, can you talk? And it says, you know, the kind of thing. It says gadara.
1: And gadara, like three distinct syllables. <laughs> yeah. So perhaps it was a creature from the underworld, and that prayer banished it back to hell maybe uh, was it one of god's mistakes was it a guardian to the underworld like you know cerberus or anubis the two borrowed from greek and egyptian lore so that's kind of the impetus for this it's like it's protecting this burial mound it talks it's you know on the grounds of a catholic school so it makes makes you wonder Right. So Godfrey added to the fact that Gadara is a place near Judea where Jesus exercised a demon-possessed man. And the most popular story about demon possession in the Bible, Jesus exercised this man, and he sent these demons into pigs, and the pigs drowned themselves in the Sea of Galilee. So that was kind of the progression that Jesus exercises man the demons left his body, went to a
0: herd of pigs, and the pigs ran into the Sea of Galilee where they drowned themselves. Well, interesting enough, we just talked about how Jeffrey Dahmer was obsessed with the Exorcist 3 and how they were using that in court. So that the subtitle of Exorcist 3 is Legion. So Exorcist 3, Legion.
1: And Legion being a group of demons.
0: Right, because when Jesus talks to the demon inside this man, the, the Gadarene demoniac, Jesus says, tell me your name. And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then he casts the demon into the pigs and then throws him off, to, you know, and drowns him in the sea. Mm-hmm. And that's also, spoiler for The Exorcist, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen it, I, <laughs> I can't help you. But, it came uh, out in
1: 1990,
0: so... Right. But in the original Exorcist that came out even earlier in 1973, how... They defeat the demon is that the priest has the, he casts the demon out of the girl into himself and then jumps out the window to kill himself. And then you see that he doesn't actually die in Exodus three or whatever. But the point is like that, it, it's the same kind of thing, how Jesus casts out the legion of demons from the demoniac in Gadara mm-hmm. is the same ending as the exorcist or whatever. When he, he says, take me that the Pazuzu jumps into him. He jumps out the window like the pigs drowning in the sea of Galilee.
1: So that that's an interesting tie to the Dahmer mythos as well. So yeah. whatever the origin of that beast, uh, the St. Coletic creature was never seen again, but that's one of the earliest encounters. And so in recent times, a hay farmer on a piece of property near Bray Road had uh, his own strange accounts. His name's Lee Hample. He's a retired school teacher from Illinois. He bought a farm field between Bowers and Bray Road right there in Walworth County, kind of the epicenter of the phenomenon. And uh, he knew nothing of the rumors of the creatures stalking the properties. So when farmers or motorists hit creatures on the side of the road, you know, roadkill or whatever. A lot of times the farmers will drag them off to their compost pile or get them off the road because they don't want more animals to get hit by cars. So he would often dispose of this roadkill on his property and then it would inexplicably be mutilated by an unseen force or creature. So he set up trail camps on these roadkill pieces to see what the offending animal was that uh, might be feasting on these pieces of roadkill, mutilating them. Well, he caught mysterious lights and objects in the sky. Now, um, Seth Breedlove in the uh, Bray Road Beast movie, he interviews him and actually reviews some of the pictures, and he sees that, you know, there's UFOs. So we have this kind of multi-pronged phenomenon between, you know, the supernatural, cryptozoology, demonology, um, strange this,
0: lights in the sky. Strange
1: lights in the sky. So you got UFO. So you have kind of a confluence of phenomenon happening here on Hampel's farm. So he managed to catch a few of these unexplicable things. And in one frame, he caught piercing red eyes, which he believed to be the beasts. So after uh, he disposed of a deer on his property, the entire carcass went missing. He set up a trail camera nearby, but instead of capturing an animal he caught a strange mist or like a cloudy smoke that somehow made off with the whole carcass. He also found a five-toed seven-pad track resembling a large canine, but only the hind set. So, pretty much inferring that it was walking on its hind legs. All right. Not using. So, this kind of adds to the modern day mythos.
0: So, it's interesting too that he wanted to use a, a like a fake name the first time that Linda writes about him. In Monsters Among Us, or whatever, he's Roy Smith, and then he gets somewhere in like the middle 2010s. He changes to be like, okay, he kind of reveals me. himself, or and yeah, that he, you know, he he comes out of the paranormal closet to let people know, and then his farm now becomes a place uh, that people collect to study the beast.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the backstory of the Beast of Bray Road. You know, Godfrey went on to research the phenomenon over, for over a decade before she published her seminal book, The Beast of Railroad, Tailing Wisconsin's Werewolf. That came out in 2003. Now, I, I find the phenomenon fascinating because it lands squarely in like a Venn diagram of the supernatural of So, you know, we see all of these themes come up from, you know, cryptozoology, Satanism, occultism, Indian lore, skinwalker shapeshifters, Indian mounts, uh, anthropology, lycanthropy, psychology, Christianity.
0: It, it, it is nuts. And what I think is nuts too, Jeff, is that it's not just, when she gets into it, it's not just Bray Road, or it's not like what, it's, you know, that, that name, Wisconsin's Werewolf Beast of Bray Road, kind of, that kind of starts it off. But she starts collecting the stories from all over the second half of the 20th century, and, and the early part of the 21st century. And it's all over the state, too.
1: It's all over the state. And then she also ties in kind of some historical themes mm-hmm. of werewolves. So the book itself is, is a really good read. It's really dense. Um, she's a great researcher, great storyteller. But I want to see what Mike thinks of, like, the specific phenomenon. The most common that the people say, it's just in a misidentified animal. You know, the most likely being a wolverine. Now, wolverines, they're very intelligent, but they're rare in Wisconsin. They're, yeah,
0: you hardly ever see a wolverine in Wisconsin.
1: You know, I, I listen to some hunting podcasts, and Steve Rennell of, of Meat Eater, he is an avid outdoorsman, avid hunter, and he's never seen a wolverine in the wild as much time as he's put in tree stands or stalking fields. So they are very elusive, very solitary. And how big are they? They're not that big. They're may, maybe get up to like 40 pounds, so the size of a small dog. So not, not huge, not imposing. But um, this could fit the description of the phenomenon. They're very stealthy, reclusive. They're vicious when cornered. They're able to stand up and look tall to a human, especially on top of that burial mount that we see. The, the Shackleman account, I'm about to chalk that one up to, maybe that was just a Wolverine.
0: Like a talking Wolverine, though.
1: A, ta- a talking Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Wolverines, they're notorious for taking down bears and wolves. They punch way above their weight class. But again, they're rare in Wisconsin. And they also emit a scent, uh, like most Mustelids do. And they have the nickname of Stink Bear or Wood Devil. So they uh, I didn't know they admitted a scent. Yep, they, they admit a scent. So that might explain some of that sulfuric phenomenon that a lot of the eyewitness accounts. So I would say that specific one I can almost dismiss as that the Gadara could have just been, you know, his imagination right, his, running
0: away, a low guttural growl. He's he's at a cemetery, he's a religious guy, he sees something that he can't explain. Yep. Of course he's thinking Satan, and he grabs the most famous demonic character out of the Bible and hears it yeah I mean that to me that makes more sense than a, a demon wolf
1: a demon wolf yep or or a, a wolf bear or a man bear pig <laughs> right so uh, the beast has always been characterized as a scavenger, you know we had the one Heather Bowie thing where it said it kind of chased them, but maybe it was being territorial most of the time they're picking at roadkill on the side of the road, you don't hear about them actively hunting animals. So they're not like a hunter or predator or prey. The one thing where the misidentified animal doesn't fit, as far as a Wolverine goes, is rocking or pacing the car, as in the one encounter. She said it was tall, much bigger than a Wolverine. So it, it kind of adds a little bit more mystery, and we can't just dismiss it outright. Sure. Like, maybe we can chalk up the Shackleman one, but I have about 29 accounts in front of me of all different size animals and historic chronological events of the Beast of Railroad, and you can't tightly fit them into that misidentified animal box.
0: Biggest wolverine you ever seen, man.
1: That's a huge wolverine. <laughs> it's like uh, Hugh Jackman.
0: Right, it would be actually the size of Hugh Jackman.
1: Yep, so... um Cryptozoology is the study of as yet discovered creatures. It's a very biological flesh and blood. Lauren Coleman is probably the largest purveyor of the cryptozoology tag.
0: He he's like that original guy that's been doing it, you know, for 50 years. And he's yep, still he around. He has like a
1: Bigfoot museum. I know he's good friends with with Linda and
0: He's from Illinois originally.
1: He's from Illinois originally, and now he's on the east coast of Massachusetts, I think. Maine, in Portland, Maine. Portland, okay, in Maine. So he's a big proponent of the flesh and blood phenomenon, that this is just either a species that's not been identified or the specific breeding lineage, you know, walks on its rear rear feet and not on its front paws, and I know... There has been some videos oh, that yeah. you can talk to about that specific phenomenon.
0: Well, you know, if you say that this is a kind of undiscovered creature... Or even if it's just a kind of dog or wolf that we, a different species or a different pack or something like that that's specific to Wisconsin or a kind of thing, that's the kind of cryptozoological, it's not a magical beast. It's just a a kind of animal that we haven't discovered yet. And so when you think a bipedal canine is what Linda usually calls it, bipedal canine, 2017, you get, you know, the video of of this dog in China walking around and a bunch of different ones. I mean, you can look on YouTube and see, you can type up dog walking on two feet and you're going to see a dozen videos of people that train their dogs to walk on two feet. Now PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals or whatever, are going to say this is a horrible thing because dogs are not meant to walk on two feet. And so it's not particularly healthy for them. And plus the kind of training that you got to do to make the dog do that is not particularly nice. Or, yeah,
1: a lot of time it's either restricting their front paws so they can't physically walk on their, their front feet and are forced to, or they inflict pain onto them. So it's it's really an unethical thing, and it's
0: something that has been done, but it hasn't necessarily been observed in the wild. Right, and the, and the most famous case of this is this a dog named Faith in the early 2000s. Uh, she's a dog who's born with two good hind legs and only one deformed, just one front leg that's deformed. And she teaches herself how to walk on her back two legs. And she becomes kind of famous from that. They were even going to use her for a Harry Potter film, but she passed away. But the, You know, the dog died before they could do it. But it becomes kind of a famous dog, Faith, the dog that walks on two legs. And this happens in the early 2000s. Now, could we say that a wolf... Or a large dog could do these kind of things, could walk on two legs, and a specific pack could teach, can can dogs teach other dogs skills? And this is from Psychology Today, dogs learn by modeling the behavior of other dogs. Scientists call it allelomimetic behaviors. Group-coordinated behaviors that depend upon an inboard inclination for dogs to want to be with other dogs to follow their lead and do the same thing. Puppies show tendencies to imitate the behaviors of others from an early age, and this continues throughout their lives. It appears that many socially significant behaviors are learned as a result of participating in such organized social behaviors. So the idea that if... A hundred years ago or something like that, you had a bipedal canine in Wisconsin or Michigan where people see the Michigan dog, Mm. Man, or the other places where they have some of these legends. I think Linda, in in one of her books, in hunting the American werewolf that came out after Beast at Bray Road, she calls it like the man-wolf, kind of is the term she was using for all these different sightings and stuff. Could a dog teach another dog how to walk on hind legs? Theoretically, it is possible. But this is stretching the limits of cryptozoology here. Yeah, and, and,
1: and you know, it's not the beast of railroad, it's the beast of railroad. It seems like it's a solitary sighting. It's never seen, like most coyotes that you hear at night. Uh, right, they're, you, they're you hear packs, a bunch of howls. Or, you know, you have the stories of the lone wolves, but a lot of times they'll they'll still travel in packs. So that's an interesting wrinkle to it that specific to this specific if we're going to chalk it up as
0: this is just an unyet or as yet discovered species and when we talk about the kinds of sightings you know we have sightings of where people just see an animal and don't have that particular sense of evil or terror mm. um I know someone who said they saw the beast of uh, something like the beast of paper. I didn't realize it, never heard of it or anything like that, but then they thought what they thought was a bipedal canine, a dog on two legs near Lake Geneva when they were driving home one night, about uh, 10 years ago. And they saw something and then they're like, that's really weird. They thought it was a kangaroo at first or like it had the same kind of coloring as a deer, but then it, it's like, is that a kangaroo? Because it's standing on its hind legs. And like, what's a kangaroo doing near Lake Geneva? But to them, it wasn't anything specifically dangerous. That's the, you know, so that to me is like, okay, that person may have saw like an animal, but that didn't strike the terror, like a supernatural terror into their hearts.
1: Yeah, and um, in, in, I know the the encounter you're talking about, it's with your producer and uh, we can actually revisit that. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to that yet reported interview you know mike was breaking news there uh, right. on that specific episode so it's it's worth it's kind of sends a, a tingle up your spine to say hmm what was
0: that right that he just he just saw something and but yeah. th- that's the kind of thing so that that to me that's the cryptozoology aspect yeah just mm-hmm. the kind of animal that we haven't heard of before then how do you explain other things like the glowing eyes there is this it's called the tapetum lucidum Uh, It's a biologic reflector system that's a common feature in the eyes of vertebrates, not humans, not chimps or anything. But if you ever see your eyes of your cat in the dark Mm -hmm. or eyes of your dog or something. If if, you're shining deer on backcountry roads. Yeah, it's because they have this... like these light sensitive retinal cells in the back of their eyes. That's a second opportunity for photoreceptor stimulation, enhancing visual sensitivity at low light levels. That's from the Journal of uh, Veterinary Ophthalmology. That's their definition of it. So that's why you get, it's called eye shine. Mm -hmm. And you'll see animals, you know, so if we see glowing eyes, that's not necessarily supernatural either.
1: A lot of times it's, yes, uh, it's a collecting the available light, whether it's by the moon or headlights or surrounding lights and reflecting them into nature, not necessarily a glowing eyes, but yes, a reflection.
0: Right, sure. But I'm just I'm yep. just thinking about what would you know a cryptozoologist say versus somebody said like that's the devil coming through a portal. Yeah, I'm mean, like, no, that's just uh, that's just eye shine. Most animals that are nocturnal have it. So Right. Yeah. And wolves have it.
1: And wolves have it, yeah. So that kind of brings us into the Satanism, occultism, supernatural. We kind of established that thread going through there. And Lori Andrezi, the first person that Linda had interviewed about this, said the creature was so manlike that she felt right away she was seeing something supernatural. And then she said, to this day, I believe it was satanic. And then Linda goes on that she told me in a recent phone interview... It was just a feeling. I don't really believe in werewolves per se, but I believe something could well be conjured up. And then she said, my grandmother was very religious and she believed it too. So we kind of get that supernatural, satanic occultism thread. And um, I know we talked about it earlier about the uh, Milwaukee Sentinel article in June 15th of 1991. So this was six months before the week article came out, and it was entitled Pets Mutilated Cult Activity Suspected in Lynn, and that'd be Lynn Township. Also in Walworth County. Yep, and that's only about 10 miles away from Bray Road, in which uh, the county's animal control officer, again, John Fredrickson, described finding dozens of mutilated dogs and cat carcasses in skeletons near a road in Lynn Township, about uh, 10 miles south of Bray Road. So Fredrickson reported that the animals had Slit throats were decapitated or had their hearts removed and speculated that the odd kills could mean cult activities of some sort were taking place nearby. As soon as that was discovered, they plowed it over because they probably didn't want to attract any more attention to that area, whether it's reveling teens or to stop the people that were actually doing it. From going back there.
0: Well, what I find interesting about that article too is number one, it's you know it's during the satanic thing, and that's that thing is straight out of what we talked about earlier, that, that handbook for law officers about you know how to identify satanic activity. Number one. Number two, we talk about weird lights in the sky. Well, what's uh you know, what's a popular um not <laughs> popular might not be the right word, but what's something that often happens accompanied by uh UFO sightings, cattle mutilation. Mm-hmm. So now we have this animal mutilation. That's not just somebody, some sicko killing the cat or some budding serial killer cutting open the neighbor's dog. There's a ton of animals. It seems organized.
1: Yeah. It seems either like a group of people or one specific sadistic bastard. Right. Going in and yeah, and it sounds like, yeah, household pets too mutilated dog and cat carcasses and skeletons. So that's another one of those supernatural occult satanic undertones. And then Frederickson, you know, in the original Week article, he kind of is kind of straight-laced, kind of flesh-and-blood dismissive of it. But one thing that he does cop to is that when he first met with Andresi after the original sighting, unexpectedly, Andrizi and Fredrickson had a very spooky experience while discussing the sightings. Andrizi had always had an eerie feeling about what she had seen. She thought it might be related to some type of unspecified cult activity. And then she said that she and Fredrickson were discussing the possibilities of the phenomenon when suddenly several books on a fastened shelf in Fredrickson's office jumped off the shelf as if they were pushed and fell on the floor. So they were discussing this activity. And he had poltergeist activity now. Uh, She said, no one had banged a door shut or anything like that, recalled Andresi. So there's no reason for them to fall off. The shelf had bookends on it. We just looked at each other and we stopped talking. So there is another kind of aspect of the supernatural to this. And then when Seth Breedlove was interviewing John Fredrickson for the Bray Road Beast documentary, He was talking about the phenomenon, talking about some of the satanic undertones. A black crow, raven, or some kind of bird slammed into the window right behind where John was filming. And John kind of looked and said, was that a bird? And there was one black feather sitting there on the window pane, almost like an ominous, like, you shouldn't be talking about this. So the supernatural aspect runs deep in this case, or in this phenomenon.
0: Well, I I think that's interesting, too. And when Seth Breedlove was talking about uh, the creation of his Bray Road Beast documentary, it was that event that ended up influencing how it was going to look. So that's why they decided to take, like, a more horror element to it, and they specifically make it feel like hammer horror, those Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing movies that it took something from more of a a cryptozoological influence to maybe something darker and supernatural and occultish because that freaked him out as well when that happened.
1: Yeah. And for some reason, Seth did not include it in the documentary, which I I actually reached out to Seth and I asked him if uh, he still had the footage. He's he does. It's just on hard drives or old computers. So that was probably 10, 12 projects ago. And Seth's right. a bu- busy dude. So.
0: But he should, put it on a, he should put it on YouTube to yeah. try to get people yeah, to watch
1: I, it. I, I said, we need to see this. You, you need to make light of this. So uh, someday that footage might make the light of day again. So we, we hope so. But, you know, he kind of went with that kind of hammer genre you're talking about. But the whole kind of things actually kind of reminds me more of like a David Lynch like uh, like Twin right. Peaks, like, like that kind of you know more, unsuspecting town, but weird stuff
0: and going on. More rural on. weirdness too, because we're talking you know in that that Twin Peaksy nightmarish kind of the the land between dreams and reality that he usually exists in. Mm-hmm. You know, it was funny that I I hadn't heard that story before the Bray Road Beast documentary came out about the boneyard that John Fedrickson was talking about in the town of Lynn and. I hadn't, you know, really heard about the different occult stuff that happened around the Beast of Bray Road. So my initial ideas were like, yeah, this is a cryptozoological thing, or it's a, it is a a wolf that's walking on two legs that's going into these places. But when people were talking about cult activity in southeastern Wisconsin in the 90s, even though we were making fun of the satanic panic a few minutes ago, right? You know, that's the area I grew up, and so... I went to high school in McQuanago, which is, if you talk about I-43, it's like two exits up from the Elkhorn exit. When you're going on I-43 north from Chicago to Milwaukee, when you get off in McQuanago, there was a, uh, like a burned out abandoned farmhouse that was right off the interstate. Kind of, you had to walk to it into the woods from like this park and ride. You'd walk pretty far and kids used to play Ouija board there. And we called it the gates of hell. <laughs> and it was around at least since the late eighties that they called it that. Cause my sister told me about the kids at the school calling it that. And so eventually when I went to high school, and I saw this, I saw this place on the school bus every single day. So it was on the ride and you could see it like far back out beyond some trees. You could see it between the freeway And the road that went into town. And
1: And like we talked about earlier, there was no Reddit, there was no TikTok. Right. It It was school buses. It was school buses and playgrounds where we exchange all of our ghost stories or all the urban legends. So it would be interesting that kids driving by on that bus would either spin up a myth about the place or, you know, somebody might have actually visited it and reported back. and. Right, go go on with your
0: story. Well, it's a I good can tell one. you, so I was always, you know, I was like, I'm gonna go there and play the Ouija board one of these days, and we don't do it until 1994, and so it's like my junior year in high school. I think maybe it's the the beginning or the end of 1994, so it's fall, so it's probably my senior year at the time, and so I get a group of people, it's guys and girls, and we want to go out and we're gonna park at the park and ride and walk the couple football fields or whatever to get to the farmhouse and check it out. And so maybe a group of 10 of us and we get into the farmhouse and there's no ceiling or anything like that. The walls are kind of burnt. Um, there's crap all over the place. It's, you know, it, it's just an, an abandoned farm, burned out farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Um, there's a Walmart now on the other side of the road. So it's not that scary anymore because things have popped up. in the past couple of years. I mean, now the whole place is raised and there's a hospital there where it used to be. So we're looking around the place and it's still, you know, uh, you can see the stars when you're in it and we got our flashlights and somebody's got a lighter and then we plop down and me and um, this girl are going to do the Ouija board. And so we get a group around, we get it together. Some of the people are still walking around exploring the house and we sit down the floor, there's some boards and stuff, but the floor is mostly dirt at this point and put the board down. And then my friend walks up as we're about to start and says, hey, use this as an antenna and throws a bone on top of the Ouija board. What? Where'd you get that? He goes, they're in the walls. What are you talking about? So when you could see the parts of the walls that were ripped out, They were filled with animal bones. Wow. Almost like a makeshift insulation or (laughs) just a place to dispose of them. I have no idea why they were filled with animal bones. And there was, I mean, a hundred of them. And I'd never, you know, I was disappointed. I wanted to see haunted activity. I wanted, I was hoping for something supernatural. And I just thought these farm kids were bored. And they just, you know, like, what are they doing? Just, I had no inkling or idea that'd be some kind of cult activity. That was not the furthest thing from my mind. I'm like, oh, just why would you put bones in the walls? That's dumb. (laughs) Like, okay. And then three months later in McQuanago, we're breaking into an abandoned hotel called Rainbow Springs. It's a hotel that never opened, had ghost stories associated with it, which is why we were sneaking in and trying to do investigations. And um, that's, a, that's a whole episode on itself is the mm-hmm. saga of Rainbow Springs Hotel. And I'm with my friend who threw the bone. And then we're also- you invited a, him back? Well, Yeah. I mean, he's a great guy. And he eventually joined a, a paranormal group in Milwaukee with the guy that wrote the Weird Wisconsin book with Linda, Richard Hendricks, okay. in the early 2000s. And so- We're in Rainbow Springs Hotel, and I'll tell a full story of going through it sometime, but hoping to see a ghost. You know, that's we always wanted to have a paranormal experience, hoping to see a ghost. And we go in this one room, and there's a pentagram drawn on the floor, and there is a killed chicken in the middle of it. And so we, there was a, somebody had sacrificed a chicken to Satan (laughs) in this abandoned. I'm sure he
1: was very appreciative of the chicken, right?
0: (laughs) Right. So somebody sacrificed the chicken. Once again, I thought it was dumb because I was like, oh, it's kids listening to Ozzy Osbourne records. I did not think it was paranormal whatsoever. I just thought it was silly or dumb or bored kids. Like we were disappointed that we walked in on a sacrifice and then, well, and then some, we heard some sounds and so we ducked you know, down and kind of like hid for a little bit. But then the, like, we saw the police drive by and like, you know, shine lights through the hotel, probably because they heard, it could have been us or it could have been the, you know, the devil worshipers or whatever that we walked in on. But it was interesting. So I had two events within a year, just three years after that uh John Frederickson finds the boneyard. I had encountered, you know, it's like, well, I I believe him because we encountered that too. So what was going on with animal sacrifices in southeastern Wisconsin in the early 90s?
1: And then it goes back to that quote from Lori Andresi, where she said, it was just a feeling. I don't really believe in werewolves per se, but I believe something could be well conjured up. So that kind of puts a finer point on it, like did... Somebody open a portal to the underworld and n- unleash these demon beasts. Right, these, even if they came through for a little bit. These Cerberus or Anubis-type creatures, did they escape from the underworld?
0: Well, and, I mean, when you talk about Lee Hample, he thinks that there might be a, a portal on his property. He mentions that just in the, there's a, uh, the Bucks County paranormal investigation. They came. There's a beast of Bray Road. Conference happened last year, and these guys came from Pennsylvania as one of the presenters and stuff. And so they went out to Lee hampel's farm and they did an investigation and they talked with him. And he mentions some of the you know the weird stuff because he's had repeated sightings than just the ones on his trail cams over the years. Yeah, because
1: he's the one who initially, you know, caught he he went out to catch, you know. The flesh and blood, the biological creature, see what what's taking care of this roadkill, you know what's mutilating it, and he found something much weirder or according to him, whether right. it's a portal or or what. We don't know the the history of the property who inhabited his farm before him, right and, and what went down there, but it's an interesting portal into kind of the mythos of the beast of Bray Road.
0: Well, and there's, and, and there's encounters there that happen that you don't have to, have to take his word for it. Linda Godfrey goes out with Sanjay Smith and Jay Bachochin, 2015, they see some weird stuff. They see like, a, you know, weird figures out in the distance at Lee Hample's farm. And uh, Sanjay Smith writes up a whole, you know, like a, a paranormal report of what happens. Uh, Jay Pachocin is featured in that Bray Road Beast documentary. His, you know, Wisconsin paranormal investigators, WPI, hunts the truth. He's the guy who's looking for Bigfoot in the in Kettle, the Kettle Moraine State and, Forest. And, and,
1: which is not far from from Elkhorn there. No. And, and that goes into some kind of weird geological features of that area with the, the glacial drumlins and... In the Kettles, in the California right. State Trail, our state forest, so it's a place of mystery and intrigue, and it's, it's
0: where the glacier stopped.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> it's actually an intersecting lobe, I think, between like the Green Bay lobe of the, uh, I guess, the glaci- glaciation and the Great Lakes. So it's kind of on a ridge there, and you wonder, okay, could something uh, geological, mineral deposits, be distorting? our perception of this place. Sure,
0: I mean, it's a liminal space, you know, geologically. When we talk about that space between, you you could say the liminal time of year, Halloween, where, you know, people say the veil is thin and and things. If we talk about the liminal space geologically, the Kettle Moraine Strait Forest in southeastern Wisconsin um, certainly fits that bill. Mm -hmm. You know, when Lorraine Dries talks about something conjured, that, you know, makes me think of a couple of stories uh, that Linda talks about in hunting the American werewolf. And it's funny. She, she starts the book with a story she got from a guy in Madison in 2004, just randomly a guy at a bookstore when he finds he's a, he's working at the bookstore and he finds out that she wrote the beast of Bray road a year earlier. And, you know, I think she was in there actually inquiring about The Poison Widow, a nonfiction, non-paranormal, true crime history book that she had written. But she's in there talking about The Beast of Bray Road. And the guy's like, I got to tell you what happened to me last week. And so late at night, he was having an argument with his girlfriend. He walks out into the street. And this is downtown Madison. When this happens, he sees a guy look like he transforms into a figure on all fours. He sees what he thinks someone transforms into a werewolf in front of him. The cars don't see it. You know, they just keep driving by. The creature sees him, doesn't seem perturbed by it or anything like that. He freaks out, runs back, to his girlfriend's apartment, like, and that's got to be a rough night anyway, because now she's going to be like, hey, you're using this excuse to get back in here?
1: Yeah, really? You could come up with a better excuse than <laughs> you, you saw, saw a werewolf? A werewolf? Really, bro?
0: But I mean, she calls it the Madison Morpher in the book, but he tells her this story just a week after it happened. She also gets, she talks about it in Monsters Among Us, another one of her books. She gets an, an email from this couple who talk about they were in a rural church in the South in the 1980s, where in the middle of church, she calls it the the church lady monster is is (laughs) the name of the chapter. And they witness a woman, and they swear by this, they witness a woman like freaking out, looks like she's having a seizure. She changes into a wolf and the guy sends a picture and it looks like the beast of Bray road. So she gets these accounts of people who claim that they actually saw someone transforming another hunting the American werewolf. She talks about how um, she gets a report from Cambridge, England of all these guys hanging out. And one of the guys takes LSD, not the person who was reporting the story, but another guy and the guy who's taking LSD starts being convinced that he's turning into a wolf and the other sober people around him said that he that looked like he was transforming. They were seeing a physical transformation before their eyes, and that freaked them out. So we talk about the supernatural. I mean, is you know, are people seeing werewolves? Is is that a thing? I mean, we've had lycanthropy as a diagnosis for a psychiatric disorder. This is from frontiers in psychiatry. This is 2021. They did a study of clinical lycanthropy, neurobiology and culture, a systematic review. And so they say 38 cases of clinical lycanthropy and kynanthropy, that's people who think they turn into a dog, mm-hmm. not just a wolf, were found between 1970 and 2020. Clinically, lycanthropy can be associated with synesthesic. That's the... feeling feeling of your body.
1: Feeling colors, I think, is synesthesia. Synesthesia
0: is where, like, let's say you listen to music and hear colors. Mm -hmm. I know. I I was like, I got to look this up. Synesthesia is the feeling of your arms and legs, and it's just kind of the feeling of your body. Okay. So it's synesthesia, sensory, visual, and acoustic, hearing, hallucinations. So... You're hallucinating, your body is feeling like it's changing. It's hallucinations interpreted as relating into transformation into wolves. There's one patient um, they describe, he's got hallucinations of hair growth on his face, trunk and arms, and then his, his face starts malforming into a wolf, that long snout and ears. And then some cases of lycanthropy, we reported, were associated with feelings of guilt, dirtiness or evilness. And the idea of being transformed into a symbolically negative animal may be related to depressive and delusional symptoms. But there are people that are convinced that they are changing into these animals. And we're not just talking about furries or whatever, (laughs) that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, an actual uh, psychosis or like a werewolf psychosis where you feel like you, when the full moon arises that you will actually transform into a werewolf.
0: And it's not, a, it's not a common thing. Like they said, there were you know, 38 cases that they get out of psychiatric journals and stuff between 1970 and 2020. But if we're talking about people having these beliefs, and then we're talking about other people witnessing some crazy things happening, is somehow their hallucination being shared? If they're, you know, we talk about what happened to the, the church lady monster, talk about what happened to the Madison Morpher or what happened in Cambridge, these, these different parts of transformation that Linda talks about in her books. These hallucinations are happening to the person. Is it also affecting the people around them? Now, that's a different supernatural thing entirely.
1: Yeah. Almost like a collective or a contagion of.
0: Right. Halluc- hallucinations spreading. You yeah. know, and that's obviously that's way out there. and There's no science involved, but we're talking about supernatural stuff yeah. and that just, if someone believes it so much, can the other, you know, can they make <laughs> the other person see it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, this, the case, you know, there's Indian lore like the skinwalkers where they believe that the spirit can take on manifestations of, you know, human beings or wolves. The skinwalker shapeshifters, even like the Wendigo, where... We're not allowed to say that right now in February in Wisconsin. Right, I
0: was going to say, he's coming.
1: Yeah, you got to bite my tongue on that one. But um, where people are manifested into these giants. So that's kind of an interesting thing where the Indian barrel mound was involved with that. And then also with the Indian mythology. And of course, Wisconsin has thousands of years of Indian lore Mm -hmm. and Indian culture. So kind of shaping that into that. And then the most prevalent is probably the folklore or mythology of the Western world. Could the Dogman be a shapeshifter? Could it be that Cerberus or Anubis that we borrow from either Egyptian or Greek lore?
0: Well, it's interesting, Jeff. So one thing is that um, we talk about the skinwalkers, we talk about Anubis with the Egyptians, and you talk about Romans had their own idea of werewolves. And so, I mean, Romans and Egyptians, they got to a point that the cultures inter- intermingled and stuff mm-hmm. like that, you know, around 500 BC or whenever, uh, when they started taking each other over and everything. But the idea of the skinwalker, that some kind of vengeful shaman or whatever can put on the skin and then turn into the creature or turn into a paranormal version of the creature is a lot like... This Romans had idea of a reversible pelt. And so the wolf turns inside out into a human and the human turns himself inside out into the wolf. And so that idea that it's their skin, it's the pelt that makes you the creature. That's if the 13th warrior, or if you guys have ever read Eaters of the Dead by Michael Crichton, the Neanderthal-ish, tribes that they fight in the movie and stuff are all wearing these bear pelts. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that they they thought they were fighting bear spirits, like supernatural bear creatures because they wore the pelts and it gave them the power of the bear. And so the Indian legend of the skinwalker they wear the skin of the wolf to become the wolf. The Romans have the same idea, you wear the skin to become the wolf. It's interesting how cultures on different sides of the planet that would never interact or, you know, don't end up interacting for 1,500 years have that same type of folklore, you know, that idea. And there's another in Hunting the American Werewolf, Great Lakes Naval Base is between Chicago and Milwaukee. So it's like Northern Illinois, Great Lakes Naval Base. And uh, a woman talks about how they were patrolling. It was her and her husband and another guy were doing a late night patrol at Great Lakes Naval Base. And they were going by a cemetery. And they saw a seven foot tall, what she describes as anubis, coming at them. Like a, you know, it's like
1: a man's body. And wolf head,
0: right? The Egyptian golden wolf. They used to call it jackal. Now they call it the golden wolf because they found out that the, the rel it's related to the wolf more than it is the jackal. The Egyptian golden wolf. And so, they see it coming at her, and her husband's Navajo, and he repeats. She says he repeats the word skinwalker five times. Is that to ward it off, or just that's all he could say because he's that's too all scared? He say, okay, <laughs> she's freaking out. And, you know, she's freaking out. They all freak out because they see, obviously, something supernatural coming at them. And then it kind of runs away. And, but she's talking about it. And, you know, she's talking about it to Linda years after it happens. And and they don't live in the Midwest or anything anymore. But it's interesting because, number one, it's not too far away from Bray Road. No. Number two, it's at a cemetery, just like St. Coletta's. It's, it's Anubis, the guardian of the cemetery, the god of the dead. And so they in the cemetery, they see the traditional guardian of Egyptian cemeteries according to Egyptian mythology. And you know you mentioned that with Cerberus, if the three-headed dog in Greek mythology, he guarded the underworld. Yep. Cerberus was a three-headed dog that guarded the underworld. And so there's also a tradition in Indian lore about guardian spirits over the mounds. And and so these guardians of the cemetery wolfish from different cultures, and then you get several stories along the lines of the Beast of the Bray Road of these spirits or these man-wolves mm-hmm. guarding the cemetery.
1: It's interesting because a friend of the show, Frank Anderson, a great artist, good writer from Wisconsinology fame, one of the... Uh, definitely took some cues from that when I started Badgerland Legends. Well, I asked him just out of the blue about a month ago. I said, Frank, tell me something I haven't heard. So he sent me this clipping from his website, Wisconsinology. And it said, in the ne- early 1970s, two sightings were made of a calm, eerie scene involving a bipedal canine-like creature. Both scenes were witnessed at dusk In a cemetery, so just what you're talking about, outside of town, and a passing driver saw what appeared to be a tall, hairy creature with a snout, fully dressed in gentleman's evening clothes of a bygone era. Top hat and tails. So a tux-wearing werewolf. (laughs) And so this was in the 1970s, so it wasn't wearing bell-bottoms. It was wearing, like, you know, 20s and 30s formal wear. So it was standing still amongst the headstones. The driver pulled his car to the side of the road and took a second look. The dapper beast was still there. The driver related this story to a local man who quickly laughed it off. One month later, a salesman from Minnesota, a man not acquainted with the first witness, was visiting that same local man. The salesman told the exact same story with one difference. This time, after pulling his car over to get a closer look, the creature turned his head and met his gaze. The salesman was reportedly much shaken. So that was Frank Anderson, Wisconsinology. And uh, that local man was his dad. So that's actually a family legend of a werewolf in Dane County. Um, He said this was uh, outside of kind of the Jefferson area area. Uh, Lake Mills area. So right in that wheelhouse of right. the Beast of Bray Road and also associated with the cemetery, but this time wearing uh, top hat and tails, which just is a great, you know, kind of quirky wrinkle to, <laughs>
0: that's a, to that's legend. That's the most ridiculous wrinkle, really. And I love that you saved that for last. You're like, wait, we got one sighting here. That's going to blow your mind. It's a top hat and tails wolf. Like in for, Wiley Coyote or whatever. Yep.
1: And for me to be deep in the research of this, reading up on, you know, Linda Godfrey, watching, you know, the Seth Breedlund documentary for the second time in like two weeks, and for Frank to send me that, I just thought I had to include that in there. Yes. And then you bringing that up about the cemetery. So you also mentioned the thing about the. Wearing the pelt of the animal. Well, in the mid-1550s, Peter Stuby, also known as Peter Stumper, Peter Stubb, lived in the city of Cologne, Germany, or near, this, near Cologne, Germany, in a small town called Bedberg. And he was reported to have sought power through magic and sorcery from his youth. He declared that Satan had given him a magic fur belt or girdle that could transform him into a giant wolf. So that kind of goes to that lycanthropy thing, Mm -hmm. as well as kind of the skinwalker lore. He had a fur belt that turned him into a wolf.
0: Well, that, I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing. You have some kind of psychosis that things that you can actually change into the beast. Now, he actually killed some people, though, didn't he?
1: Yeah, he was. And then there was also another one um, from France in the mid-18th century that you might be thinking of. The Auvergne Mountains, where sudden havoc was wreaked by a horrific creature that was known locally as the Beast. Hundreds of people were mysteriously savaged and killed in a space of about three years. So several hundred people in only three years by a mysterious creature. The culprit was not thought to be of a natural wolf, partly because of the ferocity of the killings, and partly because the eyewitness described it as hairy all over with the ability to walk upright. So, kind of back to that werewolf thing. Although it it appeared wolfing, it also had a severe case of body odor. Its face was sworn to be like that of Satan, and its entire body was said to be covered with dark, bristly hair. So, it's obviously a wolverine. Clearly, it's Hugh Jackman. So, official police and military squadrons tried to dispatch the creature, but they were unsuccessful. Finally, a local village man named Sean Chastel caught up with the beast well, part of a posse-like hunt uh he blasted it twice with silver bullets that were made from a consecrated chalice and the killings ended so that is where you get the silver bullet shot right. for the werewolf so that's kind of the impetus for probably a lot of the modern western werewolf is from that specific
0: and they, i think they made a great movie about that called uh, brotherhood of the wolf i've not seen that one it's a french film. it it's a great one, the Beast of Givardon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and I probably botched the uh, the name of those those mountains, the Avignon.
0: <laughs> that's all right. You're not French. Yeah, it's all right. I'm
1: not French. That's for sure. So this phenomenon, along with the week article, spawned Godfrey's seminal book that we talked about. A horror movie, an excellent documentary, the one by Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters. It's free on Amazon Prime. Give it a spin. It's only, I think it's about 80 minutes, and it's yeah. action-packed a great backstory with lots of eyewitness accounts, at least two metal bands and countless paranormal uh, TV appearances.
0: Yes. You might see me on one called in search of monsters. If you look through discovery plus, I believe you can still find it. Uh, they interviewed me for about three hours and used one line. Wow. But, um, that's pretty cool. They go with uh, Jay Pachochin and, and Linda and stuff like that and, and do the same kind of thing. But it's the Beast of Bray Road. Like, it changed Linda Godfrey's life. Obviously, she's written a whole bunch of books. I mean, Monsters Among Us, Hunting the American Werewolf. If, if Hunting the American Werewolf has a whole bunch of stories that you guys will not have heard. So that's really a good one. Uh, American Monsters, I Know What I believe I believe the
1: Madison Morpher is in the American Monster book, too, as
0: well. Okay. Yep. And so make sure you check those out because it, it, she doesn't try to convince you of any, you know, we talked about all the different possible explanations. Is it just some misidentified creature? Is it an unknown cryptozoological beast? Is it supernatural? Is it conjured, you know, all those type of things? She lets you make those decisions for yourself.
1: yeah. so the thing I respect about Linda is even if you've read all of her stuff and you've watched her listen to interviews with her, you don't really know what she actually thinks of the phenomenon. You know, she kind of keeps an open mind. She's kind of agnostic, which well, I think she worked
0: is, for a newspaper.
1: yep, so she is kind of ha- is a reporter at heart. She gets down to the history. So we just celebrated the 30th anniversary, and Mike was able to sit down with Linda and do a retrospective of the phenomenon for his podcast, See You on the Other Side.
0: Yeah, and we'll have that uh, in the show notes, so you can take a look and uh, hear a little bit about the beginnings of it and and how it impacted her life, and we'll put that in the show notes.
1: And then also as a kicker, he included that uh, never-before-reported eyewitness encounter that happened near Lake Geneva with his uh, music producer. Which is an interesting one. It might be one of the most recent of the original stories that I've heard. Of yeah, the and also
0: one of the most nonchalant.
1: Yeah, there. it's uh, no nonsense. Right. It's kind of like, here's where I was, here's what I was doing, here's what mm-hmm. I saw. Which I think lends a lot of credibility to, you know, this on... Un...
0: Yeah, somebody who doesn't need... And, well, that's the thing when you go through all these books... And, you know, even the the Shackleman encounter and you start talking about all the different people that have trusted her with these stories and trusted her with their, with their names and not that, that she's not going to make them look crazy or anything. Um, it's not just Bray Road. The man wolf has been seen all over the state, Milwaukee, Eau Claire, Marathon County. They had a creature in the seventies, a great investigator, Todd Roll talks about it up north. And then you see Michigan has the same kind of stories. And all over the United States, people are seeing this. People come to Bray Road thinking that they're going to... That's the epicenter for the experiences. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, right, they don't see anything.
1: No. And it's all just for the revelers and the legend trippers. Bray Road is... It's all private land. There's not an inch of public land on there. It's all... Generational farmers, we ask you to, you know, if you want to go there and take a picture of the Bray Road sign, you know, do it quickly. Don't disturb. Don't, right. you know, get in the way. Don't trespass because there are local authorities, you
0: know, constantly up and down the road looking <laughs> yeah. for people like you. So... And it's, it's also not a thing, like, you know, people have gone out, they've, they've done, they've stayed up all night. You know, Linda once went out with a, like a British tabloid crew with like meat like, left the meat out and stuff like that overnight. All, all those kind of things. And so you don't choose to see the creature. It chooses to show itself to you, is, is kind of what it seems like. That's why I think there's just so many possibilities and explanations of what might be the Beast of Bray Road.
1: Yeah. So where can we find you, Mike?
0: Well, if you're interested in learning more about the Lake Geneva area and the paranormal stuff, we have a haunted history tour of downtown Lake Geneva, and you can find that at lakegenevaghosts.com. Also, if you want to learn more about the Chicago land and all those kind of ghosts, we have that at chicagohauntings.com. And we have stuff in some of the northern suburbs, too, where people have seen the manwolf.
1: All right. And American dot for all of the tours.
0: That's right. And where can we see new paranormal stuff about Wisconsin every day, Jeff?
1: Every day I make a post at Badgerland Legends on Instagram and badgerlandlegends.com. And we will also have the show notes over at WisconsinLegendsPodcast.com. Legends you to check it all out. See you soon. Peace.
0: Hey guys, real quick, this is Mike from Wisconsin Legends Podcast coming at you, letting you know that Jeff and I will be working on Season 2 of Wisconsin Legends coming up right after this Halloween 2022. So please, if you go to wisconsinlegendspodcast.com, you can go to the bottom of the screen and hit subscribe, and we'll tell you when the new episodes are out. Or you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, you will find Wisconsin Legends.